on your emergency medicine sub-internship in a college town when a patient is brought in by her roommate. It's 4 a.m. on Sunday morning. The girl's holding her stomach and grimacing. Her jeans are soaked, and she speaks in incoherent sentences, obviously confused. You obtain a history from her roommate and discover they had been out that evening prior at a welcome-to-campus party for new freshmen. They came home around 1 a.m. after socializing and meeting new friends. Around that time, they made it back to their dorm room, and the patient began vomiting. She complained of abdominal pain and blamed it on the food and lemonade she had at the party, stating she was extremely thirsty all night and had drank too much. The roommate stayed awake with the patient and began to get concerned when she urinated uncontrollably on her jeans and began to talk about upcoming tests and exams when school hadn't even started yet. She called a taxi, and she brought her roommate to the emergency department. The girls had only met two days prior. Per the roommate, the patient does not drink alcohol or do drugs, and she isn't aware of any medical issues her roommate faces. The patient, we'll name her B, is a 19-year-old female with no medical history who presents with acute nausea, vomiting, urinary incontinence, and altered mental status. Her vitals reveal that she is afebrile at 99.2, tachycardic to 106, normotensive at 114 over 72, with 26 breaths per minute. Her physical exam reveals a young, confused, and slightly attended female in moderate distress who is tachycardic with an increased respiratory rate and has abdominal pain tender to palpation with some voluntary guarding but no rebound tenderness, who has delayed capillary refill and dry oral mucosa. You're worried about the patient. You grab your resident to evaluate her at bedside. Together, you check her airway and see that it's patent. You notice that B is breathing really rapidly with deep breaths. She has strong carotid and radial pulses. You ask the nurse to place large bore IVs and you order a CBC, BMP, blood gas, urinalysis, urine drug screen, serum alcohol level, chest x-ray, and EKG. I'm Gabby Joya, MS4 from OHSU, and today we're going to discuss this common presenting scenario, how you should think through the differential, the workup, and the treatment. Let's move our focus back to patient B. Her labs return. Her CBC reveals that she has a white blood cell count of 12.1 with a hemoglobin of 10.2 and platelets at 180. Her BMP returns with a sodium of 129, potassium of 4.2, chloride 90, bicarb 13, BUN 18, and creatinine of 1.4. Recalling back to your nephrology block, you calculate her anion gap by subtracting the chloride and the bicarb from the serum sodium. You realize that her gap is 26, 14 points higher than a normal value of 12. Her glucose is 420. Her blood glass shows a pH of 7.21 with a PCO2 of 28 and a bicarb of 14. Her urine drug screen, blood alcohol content, and chest x-ray were all negative. Her urinalysis is positive for leukocyte esterase, nitrates, and white blood cells, as well as urine ketones. This is a classic example of DKA, and specifically DKA as the first presentation of someone with type 1 diabetes mellitus. To review the basics of diabetes, type 1 is typically an autoimmune destruction of beta cells in the pancreas, causing decreased insulin production. All patients with type 1 diabetes are dependent on exogenous insulin to adequately control their sugar levels. When the body lacks insulin, glucose is unable to be stored in our cells, causing our bodies to be tricked into thinking that there is a lack of energy supply. 
Due to this, we increase gluconeogenesis, or new glucose production, glycogenolysis, or breakdown of glucose stores, and we decrease glycolysis, or storage of glucose. All of these things leading to a hyperglycemic state. During DKA, our body compensates for the decrease in stored glucose by increasing lipolysis, or the breakdown of fats, and beta-oxidation of free fatty acids leading to ketogenesis, or the production of ketone bodies in the liver. The three major ketones we measure are acetone, beta-hydroxybutyrate, and acetoacetate. The problem with ketones is that they are acidic, leading to a metabolic acidosis. Now that we've discussed the pathophysiology of DKA, let's review some of the major causes. Infection and inadequate insulin therapy are the most common causes of DKA. Looking back at patient B, her UA was positive for leukocyte esterase and nitrates, indicating an underlying urinary tract infection. In states of infection, adrenaline and cortisol levels are increased and stimulate ketogenesis. Inadequate insulin therapy may be secondary to either missed doses or underdosing. A common example of this is in patients who have GI illnesses and decrease their insulin dosing to compensate for what they think is a nutritional deficit. Subsequently, they become hyperglycemic. Alternatively, young females who have type 1 diabetes may intentionally skip insulin doses out of fear of gaining weight and social pressures to conform to body stereotypes. Other causes of DKA include dehydration, acute illnesses such as myocardial infarctions, cerebrovascular accidents, sepsis, pancreatitis, and medications such as steroids, thiazide diuretics, and some antipsychotics which alter carbohydrate metabolism. Be careful not to get fooled. DKA may also present in patients with type 2 diabetes. Type 2 diabetes is typically thought of as being insulin resistance. In severe cases, the beta cells of the pancreas increase insulin production to overcome this resistance and eventually wear out, forming a type 1 diabetes picture. Patient B's presentation is classic for DKA. The symptoms often have a rapid onset and include polydipsia or extreme thirst, polyuria or increased frequency in urination, abdominal pain with nausea and vomiting, Signs of dehydration, including dry oral mucosa and decreased skin turgor, and a fruity breath due to the acetone. Based on clinical trials, the abdominal pain is directly related to the severity of the metabolic acidosis. Patients with diabetes typically have underlying gastroparesis, and the addition of the electrolyte imbalance during DKA heightens this sensation. Patients may be initially tachycardic and hypotensive with Kussmaul breathing. This breathing is a hyperventilation with deep breaths in order to compensate for the metabolic acidosis by breathing off excess acid. In severe cases of hyperosmolality, the central nervous system becomes involved and patients may be lethargic, obtunded, and can eventually progress to a coma-like state. Back to patient B. We have a classic presentation and urinalysis consistent with DKA. So how do we clinically define this disease process? It's historically characterized by a triad of hyperglycemia, anion gap metabolic acidosis, and ketones in the blood and urine. Initial workup includes ensuring adequate airway, breathing, and circulation. 
If any of these three appears unusual, address them initially, whether via intubation, fluid bolus, or pressors as necessary. Check the mental status of the patient and obtain a history to identify any underlying source. Initial labs include a BMP to evaluate for the serum anion gap, to evaluate for electrolyte imbalances, specifically potassium, and to see the glucose levels, which are typically elevated between 250 and 800. BUN and creatinine may also be mildly elevated if the patient is dehydrated. A CBC with differential to look for infection and anemia is obtained and may show a mild leukocytosis secondary to ketones. Urinalysis is ordered to evaluate for ketones, glucose, and infection. A blood gas for acid-base status and an EKG to evaluate for arrhythmias. In addition to diabetic ketoacidosis, alcohol and starvation may also cause ketoacidosis. In patient B, we had an obvious anion gap metabolic acidosis. Going through our infamous mud piles mnemonic, our differential could then include methanol, uremia, DKA, propylene glycol, isoniazid, lactic acidosis, ethylene glycol, and salicylates. The anion gap is caused by the excess ketone production and the bicarb in these patients is typically less than 18. Equally as important as the anion gap metabolic acidosis is the overall potassium deficit. Patients with DKA experience osmotic diuresis from urinary losses of glucose and ketones, losing 300 to 600 millicovins of potassium on average. However, because there is an acidosis, the potassium is shifted out of the cell in exchange for hydrogen moving into the cell causing a falsely elevated serum potassium level. Additionally, insulin typically drives potassium into cells, and without sufficient insulin, more potassium will be found in the blood. The underlying hypokalemia puts patients at risk for life-threatening cardiac arrhythmias. You've identified a source of infection and a life-threatening disease of DKA in patient B. What is next? Your first step in DKA should be to stabilize the patient's volume status. In the majority of patients, you will use isotonic saline, or 0.9% normal saline, at a rate of 15 to 20 milliliters per kilogram in order to expand the extracellular volume and reduce the hyperosmolarity. You will closely monitor the sodium concentration, and you can consider switching to half normal saline after 2 to 3 hours. When the glucose concentration approaches 200, you'll begin to add dextrose back into the fluids in order to prevent hypoglycemia. Your goal is to correct the fluid deficits within the first 24 hours. However, you must be careful to avoid correcting the osmolality too rapidly and causing cerebral edema. Cerebral edema has a 20 to 40% mortality rate and will present with headache, lethargy, decreased arousal, seizures, incontinence, pupil changes, bradycardia, and respiratory arrest. As you carefully reduce the plasma osmolality, the patient will also have a rise in their response to insulin, putting them at even greater risk for hypoglycemia. Equally as important as volume status is the potassium level in the patient. As mentioned before, most patients with DKA have a total body potassium deficit, even if their serum potassium level looks normal or elevated. If a patient's potassium level is less than 3.3, we typically add 20 to 40 milliequivalents of IV potassium chloride per hour 
to the IV fluids with a potassium goal of four to five. Notice we haven't discussed directly correcting the glucose levels. Recall from earlier that insulin causes a shift of potassium into the cells, which would worsen hypokalemia in a patient with DKA. Once the potassium is greater than 3.3, we then place patients on an IV insulin drip, beginning with a bolus of 0.1 units per kilogram, followed by 0.1 units per kilogram per hour with a goal serum glucose correction of 50 to 70 per hour. This is the maximum recommended dose for insulin as the receptors in the body will likely be saturated. Once the serum glucose is 200, we decrease the insulin drip to 0.02 or 0.05 units per kilogram per hour, and we maintain glucose levels greater than 200 to prevent hypoglycemia. There's been debate about the addition of bicarb to correct the deficit. Two specific cases have been identified as having potential benefit with bicarbonate therapy in DKA. The first is a patient with a pH of less than 6.9 and impaired ventricular contractility. The second is a patient with life-threatening hyperkalemia used in order to drive potassium into the cells. The use of bicarbonate therapy is thought to decrease our hyperventilatory drive impairing our ability to blow off excess acid. During treatment, it is recommended to monitor serum glucose hourly until it reaches 200 and to monitor electrolytes and blood gases every two to four hours to ensure adequate correction of metabolic acidosis. Our goals for resolution include an anion gap of less than 12, a bicarb of greater than 15, and a pH of greater than 7.3. Phew, that was a lot. Let's quickly recap the key takeaways. Number one, look for polyuria, polydipsia, abdominal pain, and nausea and vomiting as presenting signs and symptoms of DKA. Number two, DKA is commonly caused by infection, inadequate insulin, and acute illnesses, usually in type one, but also in type two diabetes. Number three, Diagnosis will include an anion gap metabolic acidosis greater than 12, hyperglycemia, and ketones in the urine and serum. Additionally, patients will be dehydrated with hyperosmolarity and a total body potassium deficit that may be falsely elevated on a BMP. Number four, we worry first about correcting the volume status with normal saline and repleting with IV potassium chloride to avoid cardiac arrhythmias. We must be cautious to avoid precipitating cerebral edema with rapid overcorrection of hypernatremia. Number five, IV insulin is used to store glucose in the cells with a goal of 200 to prevent hypoglycemia. Number six, overall treatment goals include a serum anion gap of less than 12, a bicarb level greater than 15, and a pH greater than 7.30. Thanks for listening, and join us here at EMIGCAS if you would like to participate in creating shared content for other medical students across the country.